Good morning, Life Church. You can be seated. Welcome. I'm glad that you're here with us this morning. If you're joining us online, I'm glad that you're here as well. And uh, yeah, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 6 and 7 this morning. So if you have a Bible with you or where to get the Bible in front of you, I'd encourage you to go ahead and find that. Um, if you're sitting there thinking it's been a little while since, in, since you've seen me on this stage with the Bible open in front of me, you're right. Um, and so I just want to say thanks to Matt and to Colin and for their leadership in my absence as I was away for a few weeks. Uh, you may know we were just finally getting settled in our home here in Salisbury. And so I had to make a trip back to Nebraska and then a trip here again. Uh, but we're settled now and glad to kind of close the door on our transition to Salisbury and to Life Church. Um, and especially glad that that means that now we're ready to open God's word together again today and continue in our series through the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, we're starting today in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 10, and that is the verse that marks the midpoint of this book, and it really is a, a turning point. I think you'll notice that if you've been with us walking through this Old Testament book, the first six chapters and nine verses, well, we'll be honest, they're pretty bleak and pessimistic. The preacher who's speaking to us, the wisdom of Solomon, he says again and again and again, everything is vanity. Everything is meaningless. And he just runs through everything that he's had in life. And remember, Solomon had it all. I mean, he had possessions and riches and women and wisdom and prestige. And he says all of that is meaningless. It's vanity. It's like a chasing after the wind. Just such a poignant picture that is, right? You chase and you chase and you chase you never catch what you are after. And so the first six chapters and nine verses of this book, they've just been painting this picture that's really like heavy and dark and pessimistic and, and sobering. And for me, it's just language that has gotten under my skin, right? Like it just kind of gets under your skin and you can't shake it. And it leaves you with this like bitter taste in your mouth. It's almost like when, when somebody shows you like a photograph of, of something gross, that, that you just can't unsee, right? For some reason, as a pastor, people are often very eager to show me their medical maladies and afflictions. I think so that I'll pray for those things, but regularly I'll walk into somebody's hospital room, not in this season, but when people are still permitted in hospital rooms, unless you're the patient, and I'll walk in and you know, I'll be there to pray with somebody and encourage them and they'll show me the gross infection that they have that has caused them to be in the hospital in the first place. And you know, those are images that you just can't unsee, right? Like once you see something nasty like that, like you can't get rid of it, you can't shake it. And that's really the feeling that I've gotten from the first six and a half chapters of Ecclesiastes. There's just this picture of, of meaninglessness and vanity. But now I think you're going to notice it. Beginning in chapter 6, verse 10, the book really turns. This is a turning point in the book. And from here on out, I feel like the preacher is, is like a kind, wise grandfather who invites you in to sit on his lap. And whenever I sat on my grandfather's lap as a small child, he gave me one of those butterscotch hard candies. And so he gives you the hard candy and he says, son, I want you to know what I've seen. I want you to understand life as I have experienced it. And we'll get this sense of just fatherly wisdom as we move through our text this morning and in the chapters ahead of us. So in our passage today, the preacher, he's going to ask us two questions, and then he's going to answer those two questions. So let me set that up, and then, then I'll pray for us. Look with me at chapter 6, verse 10. 
He says this. He says, whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Now, in the Bible, when we talk about naming something, we're talking about having authority over that thing, right? You can imagine Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden naming the animals. That's a picture of their authority over the animals, right? They, they had dominion over those animals, and so God gave them the right to name those animals. Well, here, the preacher, he's talking about the fact that history has been named. History has someone who has dominion over it, and that someone is God himself. And it's God who knows what man is, and man's not able to dispute with God. And so the preacher, he's really establishing this fundamental distinction in the world and that there is a creator and there is creation. And creation, that's you and me, we're not able to argue with our creator. If we do, it's meaningless, which is why he goes on to say in verse 11, the more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? It's just vanity for us to argue with our creator. This is the first bit of wisdom that our grandfather preacher shares with us this morning. But then he asks us two questions. Verse 12, here's the first question. He says, for who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? In the fleeting days of our lives, who knows what's really good for us? the first question. And then the second question, for who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? If our lives are fleeting and passing like a shadow, who can tell us what will come after us? Those are the questions that kind of drive our passage forward this morning, and I'll show you in a few moments. The first question, it really gets answered in chapter 7, verses 1 through 12, and then that second question gets answered in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And so that's what we're going to give ourselves to in our time together today. Let me pray for us as we begin that together. God, as Michael has just prayed, I do ask that by the power of your spirit and in the name of your son, Jesus, you would open our eyes so that we might perceive truth in your word, that you would soften our hearts so that we might be made obedient to your word. And I pray above all else, God, that through your word this morning, you would reveal your perfection, your beauty, your glory, and your splendor to us so that we might see you as you are and know you as you are and be changed by who you are. I pray that today in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so our first question today, what is good for us, right? What, what should we pursue in life? What should our lives be about? What, what do we need? What is good for us? And that's the question that the preacher begins to answer starting in chapter seven. For about 10 years of my life, um, I pastored middle and high school students in a church in Amarillo, Texas. And if you heard me say Amarillo, Texas, and immediately a George Strait song came to your mind, I want to rebuke you later about your choice in music. So I'm just going to lay that out there. We can have a conversation after the service is done. But in Amarillo, Texas, I pastored middle and high school students for a long time. And I remember very fondly this game that we would on occasion play with our students. Usually at the beginning of the year, as our student discipleship groups were just forming, we would play this game as an opportunity for those groups 
to bond with one another. And the game was called Bigger Better. The way it worked was really simple. Uh, We gathered all of our groups in the building where our student ministry gathered, and we gave each group a very small item, usually a toothpick and a deadline. And we said, your job is to go out and find whatever you can find that is bigger and better than this toothpick. But all you can offer in exchange for that item is the toothpick. And so you can imagine how this would play out. Like our, our groups, they'd go to you know, a house in the neighborhood around our church building and they'd knock on the door of that house and they'd say, hello, sir, hello, ma'am. We're playing bigger, better today. We have this toothpick. We're wondering if there's anything that you would give us in exchange for this toothpick that is bigger or better than the toothpick. And usually somebody would say, well, sure. And they'd go find some useless piece of junk in their house and give it to that student in exchange for the toothpick, which they would, I'm sure, throw away. And then that group would take whatever newfound treasure they had and go to the next house and just repeat the process, right? See if they can find something bigger or better than the new item that they had in their possession. We give our groups an hour to play this, and they'd come back with just some unbelievable stuff. I remember still this day, um, we played that on a Sunday evening. The Monday morning, I had this dude groveling in my office because his wife, who had been irritated with him, had given away his golf clubs in exchange for whatever piece of trash my students had offered him. And this other time, I'm not exaggerating, when my students brought back the title to an old junker car that had been parked in somebody's driveway for like 10 years. They couldn't bring the car because the car wouldn't move, but they brought the title to the car, signed over to me um, in exchange for whatever they had brought to this person's house. I had to find some way to like get rid of a car that was suddenly my legal possession. But anyway, you, you can get a picture of how this game worked, bigger, better. That's on a certain level what our preacher does here is he launches into a poem in chapter seven. In this poem, he talks constantly about what is good or what is better. And the Hebrew word for those ideas, it's the same word. It's the word tov. And in our passage, it appears 11 times, nine times in this poem that begins in chapter 7. And as we walk through the poem, we see that it's just a series of comparisons. This is better than this. That is better than that. And so let's walk through those comparisons as we're trying to answer this question. What is good for us. He says in verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now, when he talks about precious ointment, I'm, I'm fairly certain he's talking about the kind of ointment and oils and spices that in the ancient world you would rub on a dead body. So this is a scene from a funeral home. He's saying a good name on the day of your funeral is better than the spices that I might rub on your body to keep the smell of your rotting flesh from becoming too poignant for the people who came to your funeral. And so he's talking about death. He's talking about our funeral. And he says, on that day, your name, your reputation, which will endure beyond your death, is better than what they use to make you smell good when they lay you in the grave. But then he adds... The day of death is better than the day of birth. Now that's a strong statement, a dark statement. But I think what we realize here is that the preacher is talking to us about the helpful lessons that we can learn from funerals, from death. He continues that that theme as he goes on in verse two. Here's another better than statement. He says, it is better to go to the house of mourning the funeral home, than to go to the house of feasting. 
For this is the end of all mankind. Death, it's the end of all mankind. And the living will lay death to heart. They'll learn from death. Verse three, sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. Again, still the funeral home. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's like uncontrollable laughter and foolishness. The heart of fools is in the house of mirth. And so you just hear how our preacher, he's dwelling on how good death is for us. On the opportunity that death gives us to think upon and reflect upon what we truly need. And so the house of mourning, the funeral parlor, it's better than a party, than the house of feasting. Sorrow, it's better than laughter. The heart of the wise, it goes to the funeral home. But the heart of fools lingers where there is only folly and silliness and laughter. And so clearly our preacher believed that there was something to be gained from contemplating death and the sorrow that death brings. What is that something to be gained? Well, just think for a moment about the kind of conversations you typically have at a party versus the kind of conversations that you have at a funeral. I mean, imagine just your typical party. You remember parties, right? Like when we gathered in small spaces and we didn't have to wear masks and we weren't afraid of infecting one another with this unseen virus, right? You remember parties. We, we don't relate to them very well today, but they were a relatively recent part of our lives and we hope that they will one day be part of our lives again. But just at your typical party, just think about the kind of conversation that emerges, right? Like the dudes gather over here, the women gather over here, the dudes, they're just talking about how much better Duke basketball is than North Carolina basketball. The women are talking about how much they complain about their, their husbands watching Duke basketball or North Carolina basketball or whatever. But the bottom line is that, that the conversation, it's, it's meaningless, right? It's superficial. It's light stuff that has no consequence, no gravity. But compare that to the kind of conversation that happens at a funeral when we are soberly reflecting on the reality of death, when we're soberly reflecting on the legacy that the dead person has left us with and thinking even about our own legacies. You might be familiar, Colin told me probably not, but you might be familiar with the Regina Spector song, Laughing With, in which she very provocatively teases out the idea that we can laugh at God at, quote, a cocktail party with a good God-themed joke, end quote. But then she points out nobody laughs at God from a hospital or in a war or when the doctor calls with bad news. She says nobody laughs at God when it's gotten late and your kid still isn't home from wherever he is. Nobody laughs at God when they're starving or when they're freezing or when they're poor. And absolutely nobody laughs at God from a funeral home. Nobody laughs at God when they're asked to identify the remains of a loved one. Nobody laughs at God when they hand you a death certificate. And nobody laughs at God when you stand beside a grave that was empty but isn't empty any longer. And that's the preacher's point here. Death, it forces us to consider our own mortality, 
it forces us to consider just how brief and how fleeting and how limited our own lives on this earth really are. It forces us to consider what will come when we breathe our last. See, a wise person said that according to the Bible, death is an enemy, but it's also an evangelist because it forces us to consider the direction of our lives and what we value and prioritize in this life. And it forces us to consider the name that we will leave behind, which is why the preacher tells us a good name is better than precious ointment. See, friends, how we use the few days that we have on earth before our lives disappear like a shadow, it matters. And death, more than anything else, invites us to consider that. And so I just ask you, brothers and sisters, what about you? What about your life today will seem empty and meaningless and wasted on the day of your death? What do you cling to today that will be ripped from your cold, dead, lifeless hands the moment after your heart stops beating? What do you love? What do you prioritize? What do you invest yourself in that will mean absolutely nothing to do to you the day when your vapor, when your shadow is gone and your life is over? See, how might considering your inevitable death lead you, shape you to direct your life better today? That's the question that the preacher wants us to wrestle with. That's what's good for us, considering our death and considering how our life ought to be lived in light of our death. But of course, as Christians, while we can profit from thinking about the reality of death, the reality of death does not lead us to despair, brothers and sisters, because if you are a Christian, then yes, we consider death and we learn from it. But as we consider death, we also consider the reality, the promise of our future resurrection. We consider the hope that we have because of the perfect finished work of Jesus who died on the cross in our place to bear the penalty that we deserve because of our sin, but then also rose from the grave victoriously so that one day we will rise as well. See, for the believer, death, it's not an exit to extinction, but an entrance into eternity. Death is gain for those who know the Lord, and we can look ahead to it with hope, with certainty, with joy, and even with purpose. See, Christians, more than anyone else, can agree with the preacher that the day of death is better than the day of our birth, because it means the day when we will meet our Savior face to face, the day when we will enter into his glory and into the joy of his rest. This is what's good for us, to consider our death and to consider the hope that we have in Jesus in light of that death. But we're not done with the preacher's better than list. He continues. In verse five, he says, it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. We can skip ahead. He says in verse eight, it's better, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. And then again in verse 10, he says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? Why were the good old days better than these days? He says, don't say that, for it's not from wisdom 
that you ask this. And what the preacher's doing here, he's, he's exhorting us to walk wisely and to wait patiently in the world with the days that we have before us. He's saying a wise person knows the blessing of a rebuke. He knows that it is good and not evil when a brother or sister in Christ knows us well enough and loves us deeply enough to confront us when the truth, when there's something that we need to hear. He knows that it's from wisdom that we will prefer relationships with people who don't just tell us what we want to hear, but tell us what we need to hear. I mean, just this week, I had a conversation with a brother here, a leader in our church here, who was asking me to evaluate his voice on social media. He was just saying, James, tell me how people are responding to the kinds of things that I'm saying and the kinds of things that I'm posting. And we had a hard conversation about that, and I just lovingly said, brother, I know that your goal in posting what you're posting is to edify and to encourage, but I don't think people are receiving it that way. And he listened to me humbly, and I just thought, and here is a wise man. Here is somebody who knows the blessing of a rebuke, who knows that the rebuke of the wise is better than the praise or the song of fools. And Solomon, he tells us that's what's good for us, relationships with people who love us that much. He tells us that a wise person understands the value of patience, right? That the end of a thing is better than its beginning because lots of people can start things. But very few people have the patience to endure and see something through to the end. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. And he says that a wise person understands that it's God who has named our days. It's God who has dominion over our days. And so when we look back on the past and say, man, the good old days were better than these days, we're actually defying the authority that the Lord has over all of history. For he has sovereignly placed us in these days. He has named us, and he has named us in these days. So it is not better to long for the past. It's better to seek to serve the Lord in the present. This is what's good for us, brothers and sisters. Walking with wisdom, with patience in the world, and remembering the lessons that death teaches us. That's the first question that the preacher has asked us. Now, the second question, remember he asked, back in chapter six, verse 12, he said, what will come after us? Essentially, how should we think about the future? He answers that in verses 13 and 14. He says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. And what a fitting and helpful truth this is for July of 2020, right? I mean, I feel like in July of 2020, we can almost just disregard the whole piece about the day of prosperity because not many of us are feeling like today is a day of prosperity. Maybe you are, maybe you're the outlier, right? Like six months ago, you invested a ton of money in Zoom stock, and so you're like, 
raking it in right now. Maybe, maybe today is a day of prosperity. Or maybe you're such an introvert that you've been longing for an excuse to not leave your house for four months. Maybe, maybe that's you and you see these days as a day of prosperity. But I don't think that's many of us. Certainly not most of us. Most of us, we look at the world that we're in. We think about the season that we're in. And man, these are the days of adversity. This has been a year of adversity, really. Between the global pandemic and painful racial division and rioting, murder hornets, and you know, whatever else you want to add to the list of 2020. Oh, by the way, it's an election year, so the next three or four months are really going to be pleasant, I'm sure. Right? This is this is this is a year that makes me wish that like humans could hibernate. Because if you gave me the option of eating a huge meal and then climbing into a cave for six months, I think I would take it. Right? But this is this has just been a year of adversity. And so I think it's such a helpful word that we have from the Lord right here in front of us. But I want you to notice what the preacher says, and especially notice what the preacher doesn't say. Notice that he doesn't say, consider your circumstances in the day of adversity. He doesn't say, consider your trials in the day of adversity. He doesn't say, consider your problems in the day of adversity. He doesn't say, consider what is broken in the day of adversity. He says, consider the work of God. Set your eyes on his character, his purposes, his ways, his work. And remember that it is God who makes the day of prosperity as well as the day of adversity. And who can make straight what God has made crooked? Friends, the preacher's point is that we can't know the future, but we can know the one who holds the future in the palm of his hand. We can't know what tomorrow holds, but we know the one who holds tomorrow. And so we should consider him. We should trust him. We can know that he will help us to endure. I know that the day of adversity, it's hard and it's real right now. But we also know because God's word tells us that there is a sure day of prosperity still to come. The Bible calls it the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's the moment when all the redeemed people of God from all of history gather together. When everyone who has truly known God by grace through faith, when everyone who has turned from their sin and trusted in the work of Jesus to cover their sins comes around the throne of the Lamb and will be be seated at a table because it's a wedding feast I don't understand the logistics of that. The millions and millions of untold people who will be gathered around the throne of the Lamb forever, but we will be there and we will raise our glasses to our King. And I just want you to imagine the testimonies to God's faithfulness that we will hear at that wedding feast. I mean, I think about Abraham being there. Abraham who would say, the Lord called me from my home when I was just a young man and I wandered my entire life without a home. He gave me a wife who was barren for 90 years, and then when she finally delivered a son, the Lord asked me to deliver him up unto death, only to spare him at the very last moment. But look at what God's done through that. Through that, he's created a people. He's called a people to himself. And from that people came a Savior, and now in that Savior we sit here. And Abraham, at that wedding feast, he'll raise his glass to toast our king, and he'll say, Who can make straight what God has made crooked? Or think about Joseph who will be there. 
who will say, my brothers, they hated me so much that they beat me and threw me in a pit. From there, I was sold into slavery. From slavery, I was thrown into prison for years only so that I might rise to a position of unlikely power and prominence and save God's people from a famine so that through that people, God might one day call a redeemer who will save us so that we can be seated here. And Joseph will raise his glass to the king and I'll say, who can make straight what God has made crooked? Or even think that, that Naomi might be there, who we learned about in our Bible story this morning, right? She'll say, there was a day when the Lord called me from my home in Bethlehem to a strange place with strange people because of a famine. I got to that strange place with those strange people, and my husband died, and my sons died, and I was broke and destitute, and I had nothing but this annoying daughter-in-law who wouldn't leave me alone. But finally, after years, when we journeyed home, God gave her a husband. He never gave me a husband, but he gave her a husband again. So so that through her, there might be a grandfather for the great King David. So that from the family line of the great King David, we might have a savior, King Jesus. And she'll raise her glass to the king. And she'll say, who can make straight what God has made crooked? And then just again and again and again, the people of God will testify to the way that the Lord used adversity to bring them and many sons and daughters to himself. And we'll set our eyes on King Jesus. The wounds that he's felt in his arms and in his feet from his day of adversity, when the Father called him to be nailed to the cross to bear the penalty for our sin, he will still feel those nails. The pain of being forsaken by the Father so that we wouldn't have to be forsaken by the Father, he will in some way still feel that pain because of his day of adversity. But he will say at the wedding supper of the Lamb, beloved, I did it for you, that we might gather in this place together for eternity. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? See, friends, we, we don't know what tomorrow will bring in this life, but we can know that the Lord is steering all of history to bring us into glory in the life to come, which allows us to endure, to serve him, and to follow him in this day of adversity. And so let's remember, church, what the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians about life in this crooked, broken world. He said in 2 Corinthians 4, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self, it's being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Church, who can make straight what the Lord has made? Crooked. Let us look beyond these days for the day that is to come when the crooked way to glory will be clear to all of us if we're in Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your sovereign, providential, good work and hard things through all of history so that you might bring many sons and daughters to glory. We thank you for Jesus who endured the greatest imaginable day of adversity 
so that in the age to come, we might know you in a season of eternal prosperity, worshiping you in light of your goodness and kindness to us. Give us now just a firm glimpse of glory that we might hold on in this time of pain and trial and sorrow, that we might endure and live for you until you come again. Pray that in the name of Jesus.